Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. In part one, with the help of doctors Tarlin Hadaidi and Burke Tillman, we reviewed and updated some points about the diagnosis of heart failure. We discussed a general approach to management, and we dove into the specifics of the acute heart failure patient who is not in cardiogenic shock, including SCAPE. In this part two, we're going to discuss the management of the very challenging patient with acute heart failure and cardiogenic shock. And we'll wrap it up with the sometimes difficult disposition decisions we have to make for our patients with heart failure in general. Basically, who's safe to go home? Welcome back to this part two. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here again. All right. Let's start off with a case. The same 75-year-old woman with a history of CHF and poor LV function and hypertension that we discussed in part one of our two-part episode comes in a month later. But this time, she's been increasingly short of breath for 24 hours, and her vital signs are the following. Heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 95 over 60, respiratory rate of 30, oxygen saturation of 87% on a non-rebreather, and a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. She looks sick. Her extremities are cool and mottled yet she has little air entry on auscultation at the base of the lungs, and it's all crackles above that. POCUS reveals beelines everywhere, a globally weak LV, and a collapsed IVC. Now, thankfully, only about 10% of the heart failure patients that we see in the emergency department will be in cardiogenic shock, but this is a very challenging subgroup of patients with a high mortality rate that we really need to be comfortable treating. So Dr. Tillman, Before we dive into this very challenging management of the patient with acute heart failure and cardiogenic shock, can you explain a little bit about the pathophysiology in these patients and why they're so challenging? Certainly. So I think part of this comes into the simple equation of how their cardiac output is derived and how you're getting a blood pressure. And really, you want to think about their preload, their afterload, and their contractility. So in our last session on heart failure, we talked about how the fluid backed up into their lungs because they were pushing against a wall. So there was high afterload. In this situation, you're seeing that the afterload doesn't have markers of being too high, or at least not a point that we can drop it any lower. It may still be too much for their heart. And the reason we say that is, oh, their blood pressure, which is our surrogate for afterload, although not true afterload, is 95 on 60. That's not screamingly high. But that's still too high for their heart because this is a contractility problem. And so that's what we're looking at. And this is also why we sometimes get these patients whose systolic is 100 and they have the soft blood pressure. But when you do their blood work, their lactate is 5 and their creatinine has doubled. Because they're ensuring that they have some improved output by cranking up their afterload. But in turn, that's still leading to hyperperfusion. 
So really, you're thinking here, this patient is in CHF because the heart can't overcome what it's seeing, but it's not because what it's seeing is above what we would normally expect. This isn't a sky-high blood pressure, but rather they have such profound heart dysfunction, either acutely from ischemia or for another reason, that their contractility isn't high enough to overcome what we would normally consider a standard afterload. Beautifully described. Dr. Hidayati, any any thoughts about this patient's blood pressure in terms of shock, not shock, how you kind of uh, read this? You know, uh, we see lots of patients with blood pressures of 95 who are perfectly fine in the eMERGE. Great question. So a few different things. One is beyond just the blood pressure, how is she perfusing? So is she maintaining well? Obviously, we're saying she looked sick. We said her extremities were cool and mottled. So this is somebody who's who's not perfusing well. So that blood pressure beyond just the sheer numbers concerns me because it's obviously not supporting her, her baseline function. The other thing to keep in mind is I know she has a history of hypertension. So somebody who has a history of hypertension who's coming into the emergency department in extremis should have an elevated blood pressure. And now you're telling me that her systolic is now 95. So not only is she hypotensive, she is profoundly hypotensive. She is shocky. So in addition to just the number, I know her history and I know how she looks. So this is somebody we need to to jump on. This is somebody I'm sending the medical student up to the locker room to get me a fresh set of scrubs because I'm about to sweat through the ones I'm wearing right now. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to highlight one concept that Dr. Hadadi touched on that's so important here that's in the history. This patient is cold when you're feeling them. I find the temperature of someone's extremities is so useful for both trying to identify these patients who are hypoperfusing, but even more, if you get called to a patient and you're told they're hypoxic, hypotensive, and tachycardic, your brain is saying sepsis, 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 sepsis. But septic patients usually have warm extremities. So I think it's such a useful clinical tool for us to start thinking, this isn't just run-of-the-mill sepsis. Would I still give this patient antibiotics? Oh, yeah. But it does ensure that you start thinking about the heart as a cause. Again, because 90% of people in heart failure are hypertensive, it's easy to miss this diagnosis. So I just wanted to highlight how important, and as Dr. Haddadi said, the cold extremities are so useful here. Yes. We talked a little bit about POCUS and the value in the diagnosis of heart failure and differentiating the different causes of heart failure. We talked about that in part one. In this part two, I want to talk a little bit about the value of POCUS in managing the patient. So how how do you integrate POCUS into the management? So you've got your patient, this one who's, you know, on the on the edge of going off the cliff, cardiogenic shock most likely. They've got acute heart failure. How are you going to use the POCUS when you manage this patient and in general when you're uh, managing patients with acute heart failure? So we mentioned earlier that we're looking at POCUS to help us with diagnosis. And so we're looking for things like B-lines. We might be looking for things like pleural effusions at the bedside. 
But we also know that POCUS plays a role in terms of guiding the management strategy as well. So is this someone who's systemically overloaded? Is this somebody who has a contractility issue? You know, what? how am I going to manage this patient? And this is where kind of the next level sophisticated management of heart failure comes into play. So when I'm taking a look at that heart, and we, we talked about ejection fraction, I'm, I'm looking at that squeeze, and I'm looking to see how well is that LV moving. I'm looking to see, is that mitral valve leaflet moving to get a, a good feel for, for the overall LV function. I'm also looking at what the LV looks like in that end diastolic measurement. And so I know that there's, you know, if there's increased diastolic pressure and volume, then that's going to look increased on my point of care ultrasound as well. We mentioned JVD in part one. And if you have a patient, you know, and this, this goes back to a little bit of, of diagnosis is put that probe on the neck and take a look and see if you can't see it, you know, with your own eyes, because the patient maybe they're obese or maybe they just have a short neck, then that point of care ultrasound can be very, very useful. And then the IVC. So I'm looking at the size and I'm looking at collapsibility. So we know that bedside ultrasound measurements of the IVC correlate with central venous pressure. So there's going to be respiratory variations of the IVC, and that is diminished in patients who come in with acute heart failure. So adding IVC ultrasound to lung ultrasound um, increases kind of not only the diagnostic accuracy in heart failure, but also helps guide whether this patient needs fluids, pressors, diuresis, or afterload reduction. All right, so now that we have a pretty good idea of how these patients end up in cardiogenic shock with heart failure and how POCUS can help us not only in the diagnosis, but also in the management of them. Let's talk about the the goals of treatment. We talked in part one about the goals of treatment in our patient who comes in hypertensive with heart failure. Dr. Tillman, what are you going to be trying to achieve in your patient who you suspect has cardiogenic shock and heart failure? So as we've discussed multiple times, these patients are very challenging to manage. So my overall goal is to get them to a place that can fix the lesion that has caused this. And I'm hoping this is a lesion issue. So get them to the cath lab for their STEMI. Get them to cardiac surgery for their blown valve. Unfortunately, there are many conditions where there's not a mechanical fix. And those patients are very challenging. So thinking of them and what my goal is, my goal is to help ensure there is sufficient cardiac perfusion because in some situations, the coronaries aren't being perfused, and that's why your heart is having problems. Appropriately decreasing their afterload, and this is where I still use BPAP or CPAP, and then figuring out what I need to do with their blood pressure. As I said, coronary perfusion is usually a problem, and I'm actually commonly adding on a vasopressor, norepinephrine. And then the last step is help improve outflow at least in the acute situation, so that the patient can be stabilized and then have the cardioprotective meds restarted in hospital. And so when I'm saying help improve outflow, I'm talking about starting an inotropic agent. 
The reason this is lower down on my list is the first thing I want to do is ensure the patient has been stabilized and they have coronary perfusion before trying to make that heart work harder. Okay, so w- with those goals in mind, let's talk about how our treatment is going to be different than the patient that we talked about in part one. You know, in part one, we talked about the hypertensive patient who you're going to be giving a few sprays of nitro followed by an infusion of nitro. You're going to be putting on uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in most of these patients that have indications for it. And we're going to try and get to furosemide pretty early if they have volume overload. Uh, This is a very different case as uh, Dr. Tillman was explaining. So Dr. Hadidi, could you just kind of outline for us your general management of these patients who are in cardiogenic shock and heart failure? So I still lead with non-invasive ventilation if they can tolerate it. I liken these patients to the crashing asthmatic that I will avoid intubation at all cost. I feel like part of what's keeping them alive sometimes is the drive to breathe and and being awake and being in distress. And as awful as that sounds, I have found that when I've had to make the move to intubate, and obviously there's some selection bias here, they inevitably crash. So I will avoid intubation and lead with the non-invasive ventilation. Now, the next part is then the delicate balance because all the usual things that I would throw at the heart failure patient is going to make this specific cardiogenic shock patient worse. So I need to create some wiggle room to be able to then provide some other therapy. And so this is where now I need some pressure support. And so as Dr. Tillman pointed out, I'm going to need to use a vasopressor to generate a little bit of uh, a comfort zone and then um, add my inotropic agent at that point because the inotropic agent may initially drop that blood pressure so even further. So I need to, to give myself a little more of a cushion um, before I add that inotrope. All right. So generally speaking, we're not thinking about nitro or furosemide, or especially early on in these patients with cardiogenic shock. It's likely to make it worse. And if we can avoid endotracheal intubation, we should. That was a great analogy with the asthma patient. That kind of really sticks in my head nicely now. Let's talk a little bit more about inotropes and vasopressors then. UpToDate had a couple of articles I reviewed recommending starting with an inotrope, milrinone or dobutamine, and then going on to a vasopressor like norepinephrine. We've got our acute heart failure patient with a soft blood pressure who's not perfusing well, and you're reaching for the inotropes uh, or the vasopressors. Realistically, the nurse needs to start one in one line, and then you know they might get need to get another line. Dr. Tillman, what are you going to reach for first? Give me some sort of practical tips on how you're going to actually use your inotropes and vasopressors and what you're thinking when you're using them. Certainly. So I think this deals with the exact same idea of why these patients are so challenging to intubate. They are riding on sympathetic tone. And we know that stibutamine and milrinone can cause some vasodilation. So what I want to make sure first is I support their sympathetic tone. Yes, it's not going to fix the problem, but it's going to allow us to start to add other agents in. So I'm going to first start them on norepinephrine and ensure I'm not aiming for a very high mean arterial pressure, but I'm probably going to aim for a map around 65. 
I want to have the norepinephrine running already because when I start my inotrope, and for me that's often dibutamine, I suspect the pressure is going to drop. And instead of having to wait for the norepinephrine to catch up from starting a fresh line, get the med through the line, all of that, it's already there, and then I can just increase my dose. So contrary to up-to-date, my practice is if they are hypotensive or they're right on the edge, I start the norepinephrine so that it's there to support the patient while I add on my inotrope of choice. Dr. Tillman, you had mentioned that uh, dobutamine would be your first inotrope of choice. I understand that there's been some big studies comparing milrinone and dobutamine. They have advantages and disadvantages. Could you just go over for us uh, why dobutamine would be your choice over milrinone and what some of the advantages and disadvantages of the two are? There are lots of debates and personal preferences on inotropes. And there was a recent large RCT in New England Journal, which seemed to indicate that it doesn't really matter. So why do I prefer dibutamine? I prefer dibutamine because it's a shorter-acting drug and it's easier for me to turn on and turn off. These patients are very dynamic and their condition can change right before your eyes. I want to be able to respond to that. Milrinone lasts much longer and is renally excreted. Most of these patients will have renal dysfunction from their shock. So it makes it a harder medication to work with, at least for me. The challenges with both of these, when you're trying to make a heart work harder, you're increasing your risk of dysrhythmias. And people argue about which one may be harder on the heart. Either way, I keep it simple. Both these drugs make the heart work harder. The heart will not like that. The last thing we think about is how these medications work. Because despite having a similar clinical effect, they work quite differently. So milrinone is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, so it increases the strength of your heart, your inotropy, but also causes arterial and vasodilation. We like that most of the time because you want the heart to push harder against a weaker wall. That all makes sense, except we come back to why is this patient so sick They're using their sympathetic tone to keep that afterload up so that they can perfuse their brain and their coronaries. So that vaso and venodilation might be a problem. Dibutamine is a beta-1 agonist, so you're going to make the heart work harder a bit faster. Maybe it won't change your systemic vascular resistance as much, but it still does. So in the end, the drugs seem very different, have a same impact. The one situation where this might be worse, if you're using a drug that works on beta receptors and the patient is fully beta blocked, you might not have a great effect. So if I have someone who comes in on a long acting beta blocker and they've been taking it, I might look at going to the milrinone first as opposed to going to the dibutamine first. But really, I like dibutamine faster on, faster off. I can titrate it. Both drugs are going to make your heart work harder. Both can start having some interesting cardiac effects and some arrhythmias. Very nicely explained. So simply put, inotropes and vasopressors are used really just as a bridge to definitive care, like the cath lab or the OR, assuming that they have a problem that's mechanical that can be fixed. 
The evidence suggests that dobutamine and milrinone have equal efficacy, but Dr. Tillman, you prefer dobutamine uh, mostly because it has a shorter half-life. It's easier to turn on, turn off, except for perhaps in those patients who are fully beta-blocked, you might you might reach for milrinone. You prefer starting with norepinephrine to ensure that you're actually perfusing the coronaries uh, before you add that dobutamine or, or milrinone. Great. That's great because... I use norepinephrine a ton in the emergency department, but I am not so familiar with dobutamine and milrinone, so that's a great education for me and, and I'm assuming a bunch of other eMERGE docs out there as well. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade created a serious paradigm shift in ED scheduling. I mean, your schedule should fit around your life plans, not the other way around. The Metricade system does a great job of balancing the needs of the department with your personal scheduling desires. The need to trade shifts is dramatically reduced. You get the shifts you ask for, and where I work, we've seen a huge reduction in the need to trade shifts. It's amazing. You get more of the shifts you want and less of the shifts you don't. So please check out metricade.com slash emcases to learn more about the Metricade system. It's been a real game changer for me and the folks I work with. One particularly challenging patient is the heart failure patient with a history of aortic stenosis, especially if they have severe aortic stenosis. And these patients can be really challenging because any decrease in the afterload, which we normally want to do in most heart failure patients, that's going to make them crash. So do you have any tips or tricks, pearls, pitfalls when it comes to how to manage the patient who comes in in acute heart failure, who has a known history of aortic stenosis? Yeah. So a very difficult disease to treat. I think it's first important to remember what is going on because that will help guide what you're doing. So unlike other forms of congestive heart failure where your afterload changes during the disease process, you have a fixed lesion at the aortic valve. So regardless of what you do for this patient outside of mechanical intervention, that lesion will be the same. So you can't drop their blood pressure and make it easier to cross. Their stenosis is their stenosis. The other problem is how our body compensates to aortic stenosis that heart has had to get stronger. And as you get stronger, your muscles get bigger, or so they tell me. I haven't done that yet. But you have a nice, thick myocardium, and it's hard to get oxygen across that, which means they need higher coronary perfusion. And we know that coronary perfusion happens in diastole. So this means that you have a patient who's in heart failure, but they actually need their blood pressure up to perfuse their heart. And that's completely different than everything else we talk about when dealing with heart failure. The second challenge here is the heart probably benefits from being a bit fuller. And we've talked all about emptying these patients out. So that's a bit harder. And they want to squeeze longer to really get across. But when we talked about all our inotropy, these drugs make the heart beat faster. So all that to say is The therapies we have don't work as well in aortic stenosis because of the lesion. So what are my steps to managing these patients? 
first of all, I want a really good sense of what their blood pressure and fluid status is. So this means I'm getting an art line in these patients, these really sick patients with aortic stenosis. And I'm actually not a giant advocate for art lines in the ICU. I'll run people on some low-dose vasopressors without art line. It's invasive and uncomfortable. But this is a patient population where I want to have a good idea of what their blood pressure is doing. Next, POCUS is very helpful here. You want to have an idea of how the heart is working. You don't need to do measurements. You don't need their TAPSI and their LVOT and all of that. But you want to eyeball how is their left heart functioning and what is their right heart doing? Is it making things worse? And you want to get your cardiologists involved early because this is a mechanical lesion that needs a mechanical fix. So what I will do for this patient in real time, first of all, make the diagnosis. So understand they're in heart failure and either you get the history from them that they have aortic stenosis or you see it with your ultrasound. Now you know what you're dealing with. Next, get an idea of where their blood pressure is. If they're profoundly hypertensive, maybe they're a bit easier to treat. Maybe I'll use a tiny bit of careful nitro with an art line in place. If they're hypotensive, again, I'm increasing their blood pressure because that's going to improve their coronary perfusion. I'm still going to use an inotrope, but I have to watch their heart rate really carefully because if they get sicker when their heart rate gets faster, it means I need to back off. And in the end, I just want this person out of my emergency department because what's going to fix them is fixing that valve. Everything else is sort of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, we mentioned that our goal is to get the patient to the cath lab if they have an ischemic lesion or to the OR if they have a blown valve. But we haven't talked about mechanical cardiac support. There's intraaortic balloon pumps. There's impella percutaneous ventricular assist devices. There is ECMO. What do we need to know as emergency physicians about who might be a good candidate for these things? Intraaortic balloon pump, impella or ECMO, just so that we can know who to call when the poop hits the fan. Yeah, so IBPs, VADs, ECMO, acronyms are awesome. But the challenge is these don't seem to have been shown yet in an RCT to improve patient-centered outcomes. And that's really the whole challenge with this patient population because all of these therapies are bridges to a definitive management. And many of these patients have end-stage heart failure and there's no definitive management. So when are we going to look at using intraoric balloon pumps or ECMOs? It's people who have severe cardiac dysfunction. So you're thinking of ejection fractions less than 25%. The patients who have profound end organ dysfunction from this, so they're making no urine, they're starting to have a decreased level of consciousness. And then the big question is, what is it a bridge to? So we'll see in myocarditis patients, it may be a bridge to recovery. So we have many young patients, unfortunately, right now from COVID who have developed myocarditis, and they'll go on to mechanical support as a bridge while the heart recovers. So that's a patient where you'd be talking to your ECMO team, be a cardiac surgeon, a cardiologist, an intensivist, to say, you know, I have a patient with a viral disease who is a young patient and otherwise healthy. That's someone you talk about. 
if you have a patient who's had a STEMI or a fixable lesion and you can't get there without mechanical support, that's someone you talk about. Where there's more controversy is a patient who does not have a fixable lesion who has end organ dysfunction then they may qualify from the sense that their EF is less than 25%. They have profound renal and mental dysfunction, but the bridge isn't going to get to them anywhere. And they've developed their refractory cardiogenic shock despite maximal medical management. You would still talk to your cardiologist. You'd still talk to your team, but it's less likely that these therapies will be offered because they're not supporting them to a destination. This patient's body has shown that it can't recover and it can't use medical management. And this is where it becomes a complex discussion with the family and hopefully the patient if they can join in these conversations. So to make this simple or as simple as I can, the evidence is not great. We don't know if this is truly changing outcome, but we need more evidence. You're going to use these in patients who either have a fixable lesion as a bridge to get there patients who hopefully will recover, and patients who are sick enough. And sick enough in our mind tends to mean profound LV dysfunction, think 25%, with associated end organ dysfunction. Very well summarized. That makes it nice and clear. That I think that really helps clear things up because, you know, at a community hospital where I work, I actually never see these things being done. So it's kind of difficult for me to figure out which patients might derive any benefit from these. So that helps a lot in terms of when I'm on the phone speaking to them, who I want to ask for and, you know, which way we're going to be going with these patients. I want to switch gears a little bit to disposition of the patient with heart failure. The very sick cardiogenic shock patient with heart failure, the disposition is not too tricky. Uh, So we're actually going to back up and talk about the disposition in general for heart failure. Let's say you've got, you know, that older patient who's been gaining weight with worsening peripheral edema and increasing shortness of breath over the last few weeks. Those are probably the most common patients we see with acute heart failure in our departments. And some of these patients actually may be able to go home. And I think before we get into a, a discussion about the disposition, I think it's important first to understand the natural history of these kinds of patients who come again and again to the emergency department with volume overload and acute heart failure. So the natural history of these patients is to get a bit better with our treatments. And then again, at some later date, a few weeks, a few months, what have you, they start going downhill again. Then they represent to the emergency department. Uh, We get them better temporarily and they go home. And at some point they get worse again. I think the important point here is that over the years, their baseline status actually gets worse and worse and worse despite our quick fixes in the emergency department. And I think that's really important to understand in terms of the treatment, in terms of what you can expect out of your treatment, uh, in terms of uh, the disposition that you're going to be deciding for these patients, and also for patients and families to understand this. Because I think there is a bit of a misconception out there uh, with some patients and families, at least in my experience, that they feel like, okay, you've fi- you've fixed them from their heart failure and now they're going to be fine. Now, there's huge regional variation when it comes to who gets admitted versus who uh, can be sent home. When I spoke to Ian Steele about this a few years ago, this data is based on probably about a decade ago. At that time, at least, 
in the U.S., almost every single patient who presented to the emergency department with acute heart failure was admitted to hospital. And that that was probably too many. He explained that many of those patients were probably safe to go home. And so it wasn't really a good use of uh, resources, et cetera. Whereas in Canada, again, this is based on older data, we sent home way too many patients. And he actually had some observational data that suggested that many of those patients actually had bad outcomes. So that's why Dr. Steele developed the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score to give us a bit more guidance on who could be safe to send home to try and get sort of that sweet spot in there. So with that long introduction, Dr. Hadidi, can you review for us what the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score is all about and how we might apply it in our practice so that we can send home patients safely, the right patient? So I do love these risk assessment tools because in some ways it helps standardize disposition management uh, for us. I do think we have to be very careful with them and make sure that we are selecting the right patient to apply the tool to. So for the most part, if the underlying etiology is something along the lines of, you know, inability to procure medications or inability to follow the stringent diet or, you know, water intake, then that's a little easier and the disposition is probably a little easier than others. So with that being said, um, you know, the, un- the, the underlying cause of the heart failure exacerbation is important. Now, the, the Ottawa heart failure scoring tool. So this is, this is very interesting. And when you look at the different items that are in this scoring tool, these are all things that we're all using in terms of assessing disposition. So it's basically a scoring system that was developed to predict serious adverse events. And a score of zero translates to like less than 3% risk. Um, and a score of you know, nine is like 90% risk. So there's a huge uh, variation in this, in this scoring tool. And while it was supposed to be a risk scale, it ended up becoming a disposition tool um, because we then ended up correlating the risk of these serious adverse events with admission. So we assume that admission decreases the risk of serious adverse events, which we know isn't necessarily true. And so then in an attempt to decrease these heart failure admissions based on the risk of serious adverse events, maybe a slightly flawed thought process. Uh, in any case, when you look at the, the scoring tool, some of the stuff is, like I said before, things that we're using. So, you know, whether or not the patient is tachycardic, whether they're hypoxic when they arrive, whether they've been intubated or not um, previously for respiratory distress, um, stroke or TIA is in there in terms of the initial assessment. And then our individual investigations in the emergency department are then included in our assessment with varying kind of weights applied to them. So whether or not the EKG has ischemic changes, whether the BUN is greater than 12, if the um, serum CO2 is over 35, if the troponin is elevated, and then the BNP, which we've talked about, you know, the utility of that in the emergency department, this specific risk assessment um, score 
requires you to send that BNP from the emergency department. And then lastly is um, what they call the walk test, which I think we all use this for all of our dyspneic patients, regardless of etiology. So you walk them, um, you do a three-minute walk test, and you see what happens with their saturation. And if it falls below 90% on room air or they're, they're too sick to walk, then that becomes one point that's added to the to the other parameters to spit out the score at you in terms of what their heart failure risk category is. Now, also the scoring system is also interesting because, you know, BNP over 5,000, that's high. And that's assessed one point similar to BUN greater than 12, which, you know, is also one point. So, you know, the, the weights of these things are are interesting. So my takeaway from kind of the, the Ottawa scoring system is that while all the parameters are in there that we all look at and we use in terms of deciding disposition for patients, I personally don't use the scoring system in terms of helping me make that decision in the moment for that specific patient. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and just like a lot of these uh, clinical decision tools, it's nice to have that list to show residents you know, what kind of things that we think about in terms of when we're making these disposition decisions. The one thing I found about the Ottawa heart failure risk score was that it included BNP, which I never order. That kind of rules it out as anything useful for me, at least. I look at this from sort of a very Canadian lens, thinking of the evidence you provided in the introduction here, and really seeing this as a, as a tool that gives you permission to admit somebody. Because it's actually pretty impressive how quickly some of these patients can turn around, even the ones who need BPAP for an hour or two. You can make them clinically look fantastic. Uh, and in a system where we're constantly pushed for hospital beds, there is always that bias to want to send them home. So I agree. This wasn't a tool I was using when I worked emergency medicine, but it at least says you can admit these patients as opposed to saying I'll only admit them if they're still on non-invasive ventilation or they really can't move without oxygen or some other clear resource reason. Um, So that's sort of the way I look at and the way I like it because it's not so much as a score as much as a dichotomous tool because one gets you in, but it does give you permission to admit someone. And I think that's what's so important from a Canadian lens where it appears we were not admitting as many patients who could potentially benefit. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I really like the point that you made, Dr. Hodiety, about the underlying cause, because none of these tools address the underlying cause. And of course, if you've missed the un- underlying cause and don't address it and don't treat it, then of course your your outcomes are likely to be much worse. So I think it's a much more complicated decision than, than these uh, tools suggest. Talking about tools, there is another tool called the Emergency Heart Failure Mortality Risk Guide. Uh, they don't call it a tool, they call it a guide, so they're being careful. And that was retrospectively validated in circulation not too long ago in 2019. It does not include a BNP, which is nice, and it calculates the seven-day mortality. And it just uses age, systolic blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturation, creatinine, potassium, transport by EMS, troponin, active cancer, interestingly, and if the patient is taking diuretics at home. Dr. Hadiati, any 
comments about this emergency heart failure mortality risk guide? Is it kind of ditto what you were saying about the Ottawa score? Interesting things on the list, but it's not going to help me very much. Or do you think this one's better? Seven-day mortality for patients who present with heart failure to the emergency department. When you look this specific scoring system up in MD-Calc, there is, there is a section there that says why you should use it. And I love how whoever wrote this, the, the authors, they said, you know, most patients who don't feel good and are short of breath are going to be okay with you admitting them. But this tool might be helpful to show the patients who are wanting to leave against medical advice as sort of a, a hard finding that is independent of you and whatever your push toward admission may be. This becomes sort of the unbiased tool that's that can convince them that they should stay. But um, other than that, I'm not sure that that I would have much use for this tool. All right, maybe we be maybe we should be calling these tools and guides admission potentiating tools. Love that. Yes. (laughs) Well, we're nearing the end here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the future of acute heart failure diagnosis and management. Dr. Tillman, do you want to go first? What do you think is uh, in the next five or 10 or 15 years coming down the pipe in terms of how we approach heart failure? So I do think there's a lot of focus on mechanical treatments for heart failure either because we haven't found one that works yet, or the idea that a lot of heart failure is symptom management and it's a very difficult disease to treat. So I I wouldn't be surprised to see more forms of mechanical support offered at home, like people who have VADs in the backpack. And that will be a whole another part of emergency medicine is troubleshooting someone's ventricular assist device when it's not working. So that's that's either fortunately or unfortunately a big part I see coming down the pipeline just because the medical community has lots of medical advantages and new medications, but patients are still developing episodes of acute heart failure. So I think there's going to be a lot of look at different ways to support the heart to try and avoid these situations from occurring. So that would be sort of the biggest like paradigm shift I see coming here is moving from a medication based management to uh, mechanical support-based management. All right. We'll be looking forward to uh, some good RCTs that show some benefit from one of those. (laughs) All right. And uh, Dr. Hedayati, any thoughts about the uh, future of acute heart failure management? I think a two-pronged approach. So number one is obviously prevention. So if we can prevent the disease, then we don't have to worry about treating the disease. I do think we're a long way off away from that, but you know, early diagnosis of the underlying causes of heart failure and and preventing those things and, and education are going to be super helpful. And then I think early intervention. So a lot of the things that we hold back for advanced heart failure, I think the future will show that providing those earlier in the process will lead to better morbidity and mortality. Unfortunately, we're very comfortable taking care of heart failure in the emergency department. But when you look at mortality rates for this disease process, they're exceptionally high. And five-year mortality of, of close to 40% is not insignificant. So I think really it's going to be prevention and early intervention. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hodiety and Dr. Tillman. You both have these simply amazing abilities to distill complex concepts into clear, concise, educational gems. So I hope to have you back soon on the show sometime. Thank you very much for your contributions. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy being here. Thank you so much. If you haven't already, please help support EM Cases by checking out emcasessummit.com. That was a hugely successful conference that we put on for about 500 registrants in November, where we recorded every procedural video, every discussion, every rant, every talk by all of your favorite EM Cases guest experts. Everything is available there for streaming. So please check it out, emcasessummit.com. So until next time, take it easy.